Exodus 22, verse 16. That's where we begin this morning. Exodus chapter 22, verse 16. Open your Bible, navigate on your device so you can follow along. The topic, God continues to give Israel law after law to encourage their peaceful living together. The title of our message, Law Law Land. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thanks for our morning thus far. An incredible joy to be able to sing songs to you and to realize that as our Father in heaven, you hear them and are blessed by them. Thank you for the grace, Lord, and the mercy we find at your throne. And I pray this morning as we go through this ancient text, it would speak to our modern hearts, that we would know that your word is true and that none of them would return void, but that they'll accomplish a great and mighty purpose in the lives of the hearers this morning. Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, our prayer is that they'd be convicted of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come by the wooing of your Holy Spirit, showing them Jesus on the cross, dying in their place. We thank you, we praise you, we do it in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. Every now and again, there's a story about the antics of an eccentric judge. In 2009, Circuit Judge Daniel Rozak sentenced Clifton Williams to six months in jail for yawning loudly when the judge sentenced his cousin to two years probation. The prosecutor in the case said the yawn was loud and boisterous and an attempt to disrupt the courtroom. Do you, do you yawn loudly? I found out something interesting about yawns the other day. You understand sympathetic yawning, right? When you, oh, you yawn and then other people yawn after you're there. God bless you. <laughs> this is true. This is a true fact because I saw it on the internet. Uh, they have no, one of the things that they've noted is that psychopaths do not have sympathetic, sympathetic yawning. You can yawn all day in front of a psychopath and they have no reaction to it whatsoever. So just let that sink in. Those. Yeah, now everybody's yawning. Yeah, that's. In 2005, Judge Robert Restaino, Niagara Falls, New York, jailed all 46 people in his courtroom after none of them would admit to having the cell phone that began ringing during his court session. So rather than make fun of you, as I normally do when your cell phone goes off, if your cell phone goes off, everyone in here is now working in the nursery. <laughs> Reality television has given us a few colorful judges, Wapner, Judy, Roy Brown. I'm pretty sure that we shouldn't think of the courtroom, though, as a place to be entertained. It seems that that goes across purpose. My favorite judge from the movies, Sylvester Stallone as Judge Dredd. I am the law, was his famous line in that futuristic thriller. By the way, did you know that Stallone's slurred speech is the result of an accident at birth? It's not just that he's Italian. During his, del <laughs> During his delivery, forceps damaged the nerves to his face, leaving the left side permanently numb. In Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2, Stallone plays Stakar, the leader of a group called the Ravagers. Trouble is, he couldn't pronounce it. He kept saying Ravenger. It's on the outtake reel. And at one point, he says, forget it. They'll just have to edit over it. He, he just gave up trying to learn how to pronounce it. Now, we're not going to read about loud yawns or disruptive cell phones in our text from Exodus, but we will read about a variety of legal issues being brought before the elders 
who had been appointed to help Moses judge cases. We can step back and look at this as if it were the daily judicial calendar. Case after case came before the elders, and they were as diverse as you can imagine. It was their responsibility and their privilege to apply the Ten Commandments to these cases and make a ruling. Most of these cases refer to Israelites by birth. In fact, the the vast majority of them. There are two verses, however, about people from other countries living among them. Here they're called strangers. We'll get into that towards the end. Putting all this together, I'm going to organize my comments around two points. Number one, since you're to love him as, as yourself, you will want justice for your neighbor. And number two, since you're to love him as yourself, you will want justice for the stranger. Let's take a look at neighbors first. Now, on the surface, it was a daunting task. Several million Israelites, along with a mixed multitude, found themselves in the desert. Their ancestors had been in Egypt over 400 years A good portion of that time, they served as slaves. They'd known only Egypt's laws, and mostly from the perspective of a subjugated people who had little or no legal recourse. Redeemed by lamb's blood, they were being established by God as his own special nation on the earth. God had appeared to them in his glory. He had spoken to them from Mount Sinai. He was offering them a covenant. He had given them the Ten Commandments verbally as its basis. They would soon serve him in the earthly tabernacle. And greatest of all, through Israel, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, would be born. Before any of that could happen, they would need to get along with one another and establish a society. They could if they'd simply love the Lord with all their heart and mind and soul and love their neighbor as themselves. When that didn't happen, and in fact they mistreated one another, then the elders must judge the case. And so let's take a look at some of the cases that came before them and let God's guideline and see God's guidelines on their disposition. And, and really, though sometimes people try and put some kind of a theme or an order to these, they're just a string of various cases that the uh, judges would have to deal with. And you, we don't want to impose anything artificial on them. It's like I, mean, I, I don't I'm not that familiar with judges, but I am familiar with police officers. It's like their daily calls. Uh, you never know what you're going to be dealing with. Neighbor disputes, abusive spouse, um, cat in a tree. Uh, you know, you could go from zero to 60 quite quickly and um, you'd have no idea what's coming next. And that's, that's kind of what's happening here. These are the judges and they're hearing a variety of strange cases. And so verse 16, if a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. Betrothed is what we call engaged, except it was a formal legal contract that required a divorce to break. At the time of betrothal, a bride price, a dowry, was paid to the family of the bride. So they entered into this legal agreement that this couple was going to get married and there was money. They had skin in the game, you might say. Uh, we would call this situation premarital sex. Now, it's hard to settle on solid statistical evidence, but one researcher summarized by saying, today most Americans think premarital sex is okay and will have three or more sexual partners before marrying. When premarital sex results in pregnancy, so-called shotgun weddings have declined. Uh, I'll quote this article. It says, about two-thirds of couples who had a premarital pregnancy in the early 1960s got married in a rush. That share fell to about a quarter by the 1990s, research shows. 
The latest analyses by researchers from federal agencies suggest a drop to single digits as more couples opt to live together rather than marry and don't want a child to rush them into marriage. God's guidelines for Israel were the following, and we're going to reach into Deuteronomy 22 as well to kind of give you a well-rounded understanding of, of how God dealt with this. So according to Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 and 24, the seduction of a girl who was betrothed resulted in death by stoning for both parties. If an unengaged virgin submitted to seduction, the guy was required to pay her bride price and marry her. If her father did not want his daughter to marry the guy because he was a dirtbag, he was still obligated to pay the bride price. In addition, according to Deuteronomy 22, 28, and 29, if they did marry, the husband in this situation could never legally divorce this woman. And so these are the rules surrounding premarital sex. These guidelines definitely curbed premarital sex. You were essentially deciding to marry without the possibility of divorce, and if the father refused to let his daughter wed, the guy would be out the money he and his family had been setting aside for marriage. And so it was very strict. If part of you says, gee, that's harsh, well, then you live in a Pollyanna world. And it really wasn't. Consider the following two things. Premarital sex robbed the family from participating in the joy of a betrothal and a wedding. It was incredibly selfish, driven only by lust, not by love. You know, your relationships touch on all your other relationships. Uh, no, nobody's an island. We have these ideas that all of these situations were like Romeo and Juliet, where these cruel parents wouldn't let these star-crossed lovers come together. These are normal families. These are wonderful individuals, and these are kids who are letting their hormones control their life and kind of in interfering with the joy of their entire family. And so think about it that way. And these guidelines mercifully provided for the girl who might never get married otherwise by demanding that the guy either man up or pay up. In their society, if you had sex, and especially if you got pregnant, I mean, you're, you're not really marryable. And we can argue about that if you like, but that's just the way their tribal society was. And so it was merciful towards the girl. Our guideline today, at least a big one, is Hebrews 13, verse 4, which says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Marriage, as defined by God, is between one biological man and one biological woman for as long as they both shall live. It's a gift from God. Sex is to be restricted to those in a covenant of biblical marriage. Anything else is not only sin, it is less than God's best for you. Both in ancient Israel and today, you can avoid all the hassle by just saying no to sex outside of marriage, trusting that God who made you and loves you has your best life in mind. A quick word of grace. Many of us started off all wrong in this area or we've sinned along the way, but God has or he can redeem our situations. We should never sin that grace might abound, but if we've sinned, grace does abound. Speaking of such grace, A.W. Tozer wrote, the same grace that saved me will save you. Therefore, I recommend, if you have slipped, and all of us have at some point, just take the plunge into the ocean of God's grace. And so today, if you're here in a situation like I'm describing or in anything else that you're going through, uh, just repent and begin to walk with the Lord and let his grace cover you. 
Case closed. What's next on the docket? Verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Forget laws to keep palm readers and mediums outside of city limits. Just capital punishment will do it. They're serious about this. Madam Sophia, you better run. Is she still out along the freeway there? The Fresno? Man, she's got to be a thousand years old. (laughs) If this seems harsh, here's an answer. Don't practice sorcery. Nobody is forcing you to do it. It was a choice, and you knew the consequence. I mean, nobody said, I had to do it. I had to conjure up demons. I, I just, what was I supposed to do? Uh, so just don't do it. Today, we think of sorcery as a form of entertainment. Whether it's Harry Potter or some television medium, it all seems not only harmless, but actually helpful. The Bible's a supernatural book revealing the supernatural realm. There are fallen angels, seducing spirits. There are demons. When psychologist Carl Jung tells you that he was in contact with a spirit being named Philemon, Dave Hunt used to call him Philemon the demon. And so a lot of these people will tell you they had spirit guides. What do you think the source of those spirit guides are? It's not the Holy Spirit. It's an evil spirit. And so some of these things are very, very real. It's not all real. Harry Houdini made it an obsession to debunk psychics and mediums as frauds. But there are real sinister powers at work in many cases. And to protect the national psyche of Israel, God wanted those on earth who were in contact with those forces killed. That's how serious it was. Best to steer clear of all this kind of stuff. Now, this next case is rated MA. Verses 19 and 20 should go together. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. He who sacrifices to any god except to the Lord only he shall be utterly destroyed. Now, I read these two together because the worship of these little G gods sometimes involve depraved sex acts. If you have any children in here right now, you might want to cover their ears. I'm going to just quote something. It's an old Canaanite poem. And I recommend from now on you read ahead uh, so that you know what's coming. But anyway, you know, sometimes... We can't always access my Bible studies online because of filters, uh, because of what the Word of God actually says about, it's not what I say, it's, it's God talking about these things, and you know, here we are. Okay, so here we go. I'm going to go, it's not funny, but it's that nervous humor. Now, now you're anticipating something great. I should just move on. I should quit now, do a mic drop. Anyway, this is a Canaanite poem. It's called The Bale Cycle. Mightiest Baal hears. He makes love with a heifer in the outback, a cow in the field of death's realm. He lies with her 70 times seven. She conceives and bears a boy. When we read about Joshua going in and taking a conquest of the Holy Land and killing the Canaanites, these are the people that we're talking about. We're talking about people who in their worship had sex with animals. Now, you may have heard of the book of Enoch, It's not scripture, but it's quoted as being reliable by both Peter and Jude, and references to that book can be discovered elsewhere in the Bible. In one passage, the book of Enoch seems to indicate that the angels who sinned in Genesis 6 by marrying and mating with human women to produce Nephilim giants may have also had sex with animals and produced some of the weird creatures that are made famous in various mythologies around the world. Today, we talk about chimeras, 
the human-animal hybrids that geneticists are actually capable of making in the laboratory. And so it's a little bit out there, but there's a lot of biblical and literature basis for it. These creatures like centaurs and minotaurs that are half something and half human, they may have actually existed because of these depraved sexual acts. So let's move on to verse 22. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wife shall be widows and your children fatherless. If you're one of the judges, you say, wow, okay, thank you for a just straightforward widow case after what they've just dealt with with sorcery and bestiality. Now, kill with the sword was a warning that such behavior persisted. God would punish the whole nation by using an invading army against them. We can stop for a minute and recognize something we haven't mentioned yet because we're so focused in on these laws. Uh, God is compassionate. In this case, his compassion is shown by his heart towards widows and orphans. God wanted his people, Israel, and he wants his people, the church, to be as compassionate as he is. And we have a tendency to think sometimes that just because we're uh, upholding the law or abiding by the law or applying the law that it cancels out compassion. But we have to be compassionate on top of uh, the judgments that we make. One of the first big decisions in the early church in the book of Acts was a fair treatment of widows. The apostles took it so seriously that they appointed their best seven men to oversee the distribution of goods to the widows. Now, largely, society, uh, government has taken over benevolence and care of widows and orphans and things like that. It hasn't always been that way. Uh, The church has a long history of being the agency that God has established to minister to people. I'm not astute enough on the history of things to know how we got into the state we're in, uh, but at least we have to do what we can do at our local level as a church to take care of widows and disadvantaged individuals. And so verse 25, next case. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that's his only covering. It's his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. No interest loans. Sign me up. I'm all for that. This guy was borrowing some money. He probably only had the clothes on his back as collateral. You couldn't keep his outer garment overnight. Served as a sort of blanket and sleeping bag because he was probably living outdoors. And so what I get out of this is, is there's more of a charitable sense, you know, than, hey, can I borrow some money? You'd be better off just giving the guy some money or just helping him out in some other way. But if you wanted your money back and you took collateral, you had to give the collateral back at night. And so how safe is that? And so it's an interesting way of discouraging borrowing and lending because you get no interest for it, uh, and, you know, and so, but you still were obligated. You, know, you maybe wanted to make a loan, but you're thinking, we just learned that God is compassionate, so maybe I should just help this individual. Next case. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Now, this has to do with recognizing the authority God has over your life. You belong to him. True, you were set free by lamb's blood, but it was a freedom to serve God rather than to serve sin. The ruler of your people is God's delegated authority over you on the earth. 
I know most of them seem ungodly, but we are to submit to them as unto the Lord. We like to submit to the government authorities when they agree with us or we agree with them. And when they don't, then we're trying to look for loopholes to where we can get around it. If you want to really get into this, study the life of Daniel. I can't think of anybody in the scriptures who is more qualified to speak to us about how to honor the Lord by honoring the rulers that he has raised up over us. Daniel, you remember, began his career in Babylon as a captive, as kidnapped, taken away from Israel and put in Babylonian schools and forced to study certain things. And you see where he drew lines and where he thought compromise was okay. And he becomes a real force in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, so much so that Nebuchadnezzar gets saved and comes to know uh, the God of Israel. Then Daniel, he's not done. He ends up being uh, an important part of the Medo-Persian Empire that uh, takes over for Babylon. And again, he finds ways to compromise, but there are times when he draws the line and says, I'm going to pray three times a day, and if I get thrown into the lion's den, so be it. And so it's a very interesting study if you really want to get into you know, how a Christian ought to uh, obey those that are over us as unto the Lord. At least you'll get the guidelines there. Now, in this case, no punishment is suggested, giving the elders some wiggle room to enforce this. Remember, these are guidelines on how to implement the Ten Commandments. We, people are people, and people being people, you can't imagine the things that they're going to get into uh, and so these aren't all the possible cases. These are representative so that the judges will have some idea of how to judge. Verse 29, you shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. Israel was God's firstborn, having been spared by them when, he, uh, when the death angel took the firstborn of Egypt on the night of the first Passover. And so these rituals involving the firstborn of man and beast celebrated their redemption and salvation. And with this many people, there would always be a lot of people coming forward to redeem their firstborn or offer the firstborn of their animals. And each time it was a constant reminder of how this nation was born. It was redeemed out of slavery by the blood of the lamb who, looking ahead, of course, is Jesus Christ. And so they had a daily, many, many, many reminders of the wonderful grace of God. And uh, we, we need that too. Uh, and, and yet, you know, the worship of God for us is more spiritual, so we don't have these physical reminders. So we need to set up in our own hearts and our own lives these spiritual reminders in our devotions and by coming to church and having fellowship with other Christians and, and sharing uh, the wonderful grace of the Lord. Now the next case... Roadkill, verse 31, and you shall be holy men to me. You shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Not exactly roadkill, but you get the idea. You came across some animal that had been attacked by another animal in the forest uh, or in the wilderness, rather. In such a case, the blood would not have been drained immediately, and to eat blood was a violation of God's law. Also, there was the danger of infection from various diseases spread by animals. Some of you, have you familiar with the TV show? I forget what channel it's on, one of the educational channels called Alone, where they drop people off by themselves on an island. They have to absolutely fend for themselves. They're all alone. They're filming themselves and stuff. Crazy. 
Somebody always taps out first day. I would tap out on the boat before they dropped me off. <laughs> One guy tapped out, he got off and he saw bear poop and he said, that's it for me. Now, he knew bears were going to be there, but when he actually was there alone, it really affected. Anyway, there was one guy, he seemed like he was doing okay, but he couldn't find water, so he just, he said, I think this is contaminated water, but I'm going to drink it anyway because I'm so thirsty. He started to go nuts, and luckily, he, before he went totally crazy, he tapped out, and they came and got him, and you know, now he just has a brain worm, but anyway, I think he was all right, but so there are times when God maybe would give these restrictions because of health and hygiene. But beyond those issues, here we're told, he wants them to be holy men, which means I want you to be set apart from your neighbors, so I'm gonna have you do some things that they don't do. The rules God established weren't always about health and hygiene. And that's where some people go wrong, urging you to abide by the Old Testament dietary restrictions because, after all, this is the way you should eat for health. Kosher Jews don't eat pork or crab. Nothing wrong with pork or crab. No health or hygiene issues. One rabbi even said, and I quote, while the commandment to follow a kosher diet falls under the category of laws which don't necessarily seem logical, we observe them because God commands us to. And so a Jew could eat bacon. They choose not to, a kosher Jew, because God says not to, not because eating bacon is bad for you, as most of you would attest, eating bacon is not only good for you, it's necessary. <laughs> right? And so it's not about the dietary restrictions. It's about you going to breakfast with your Gentile friend and saying, no, no bacon for me. Why? Uh, God in his word gives us some restrictions. Well, that sounds kind of weird. Well, yeah, there's some things I don't understand, but here's some things I do understand about his grace and his mercy and his salvation. And it's like a, an opening for them to be able to share. They were just separate enough, just different enough so that people would be curious about the God of Israel. Verse one of chapter 23, you shall not circulate a false report. Don't put your hand to the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. An accusation required two witnesses to be verified. It would tempt folks to ask someone to falsify their testimony in order to act as a second witness. And so the judges had to be concerned about that. Uh, verse two, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. You'd be surprised how easily a person can be pressured by a group and go along with their wickedness. It would make it really, really tough on the elders when a bunch of people were testifying, but they were testifying falsely. And so this might be a good place to recognize that these elders, hearing these cases, needed more than just God's law and their own intellect. They needed discernment that could only come from God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did not permanently indwell believers in Old Testament times. That's a privilege, we believe, given to the church in the church age. But they could be filled with the Spirit. They could be led by the Spirit. He could come upon them. In fact, he must if they were to render decisions because the law itself would never be enough and their own intellect would never be enough. In fact, when these elders are chosen later on, uh, there's another passage that describes it where God says he's gonna take a portion of the spirit that he had given to Moses and give it to these elders. And so though we're looking at the law, it's not without the element of discernment and the discernment of the spirit. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute this is interesting. We normally think of the poor man as a victim. 
He can be for sure, but his poverty doesn't ensure that he's innocent. The elder should not show him preference just because he was poor. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely keep, uh, help him with it, rather. This is a who's my neighbor thing. As Jesus would describe it, the real question is, whose neighbor are you? You're everybody's neighbor, including your enemies. You're to do good as a good neighbor should. I like that. It's a nice slogan, right? You're to do good as a new neighbor should. Or like, we could do it like a good neighbor. Christians are there. We could do that too, right? Okay, nobody's really on. <laughs> Note to self. Siri, don't, don't ever use that part of my study again. Verse six, you shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. Your poor, your poor, reminded the elders that though impoverished, the poor man was their brother. There's a sense of responsibility to show mercy, but for the grace of God, there go I. And so you shouldn't automatically show preference to a poor man, but at the same time, you needed to have compassion upon them and not think that it was all their own doing, but for the grace of God, there go I. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not justify the wicked, and you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. These are the ethics rules governing the elders who judged. Certainly you hope to appear before someone who is impartial and had the integrity to not be bribed either directly or by favors. Commenting on this section, one author wrote and said, the strictness of the divine justice is seen in these ancient enactments, but there is also revealed the tenderness of divine compassion. The law is severe on evildoers in order that well-doers may be encouraged and strengthened. God is just to punish the unjust and the oppressor, but he is compassionate to the weak and helpless. How tenderly he cares for the widow and the orphan. Their mournful cries touch his divine heart. Here are the combined justice of the ruler and the tenderness of the father. We must be just, but justice must be tempered by mercy and sweetened by compassion. Let the beautiful humanness of our religion be always manifested." It wouldn't be wrong to say that Jesus manifested a beautiful humanness in all of his dealings with people on the earth. We need to let compassion overrule us without our compromising God's rules. We know what is right, we know what is just, but we also know that God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to eternal life. Do you remember the old Amco transmission slogan? Our mission is transmissions. Anybody remember that at all? Amco, our mission is transmissions. <laughs> our mission, our mission, I don't mind. I've got, you know, what do I care? <laughs> our mission is the great commission to go and as we are going to make disciples of all men. Our mission is the great commission and our manner ought to be with compassion. We're always gonna be on the right side of God's law as we understand it. But we also wanna have the heart of God and realize that sometimes the issues at hand are not the real issue. The real issue is eternal life in Jesus Christ and reaching people with the gospel. And since you're to love him as yourself, our second point, you'll want justice for the stranger. We skipped that verse in chapter 22 and now we're at verse nine of chapter 23. So let's look at those verses together. 
You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And you shall not oppress a stranger, for you, shall, uh, you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I got to thinking about that. I, I like that, the heart of a stranger, because we, here in this country, we know the heart of a stranger, do we not? In absolute numbers, the United States has a larger immigrant population than any other country with 47 immigrants as of 2015, probably a lot more now. This represents 19% of the total uh, immigrants worldwide, and it was 14% of the U.S. population in 2015. Many of us are the children or the grandchildren or the great-grandchildren, as it were, of immigrants. My dad came over uh, on a boat from Minturno, Italy, to Ellis Island when he was 16 years old and immigrated to the United States. Now, I, for one, am glad that he did. I would rather grow up in the United States than under Mussolini's Italy. Uh, and I would rather my dad fight against Italy in World War II than be a part of something crazy that was going on with Nazis and fascists. And so we have the heart of a stranger. Our text speaks to a few basic issues regarding biblical immigration. While researching it, I came across a pretty thorough analysis by a Christian professor at a place called the Center for Immigration Studies. He made two excellent points from the language and context of the Bible. The first was that the word stranger is a technical term describing a foreigner who had attained legal status in Israel. And so there were foreigners, and then there were strangers. And stranger sounds like a strange word to use for us, but the actual Hebrew word is ger, G-E-R, and it means a foreigner who had attained a legal status. And the second thing this professor noted was that in the geopolitics of the Bible, there were recognized borders that required permission to pass. The Israelites themselves, you remember, had to ask permission of Egypt to initially settle within the borders of Egypt in the land of Goshen, and they received that permission from none other than the Pharaoh of Egypt, who thereby also granted them a certain legal status. The article I'm referring to concluded, and I quote, in the ancient biblical world, countries had borders that were protected and respected, and foreigners who wanted to reside in another country had to obtain some sort of permission in order to be considered an alien with certain rights or privileges. Now, this tiny bit of information by no means resolves the complicated immigration <laughs> issues we face or that of, uh, you know, uh, refugees. I'm not trying to solve anything. I just want us to not misapply the Bible within our ongoing debate. As Christians, we can promote the rule of law, but we must do so always with the compassionate heart of a stranger. That's maybe a hard road to figure out, but that's our goal. The rule of law with compassion. As Christians, our mission is what? I said it before, our mission is the Great Commission. We're to be about the Lord's work, promoting the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. Whatever the political issue, if people get saved, the situation changes dramatically. And so we don't want to always be so focused on the politics that we miss, uh, you know, the main thing. You know that old thing, keep the main thing the main thing? The main thing is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Evangelist Charles Finney came to Rochester, New York in September of 1830 to fill the pulpit of Third Presbyterian Church. The congregation was without a pastor. They were in danger of disbanding. Originally, Finney and his team declined the invitation, but after praying about it, he went. If you read the story, you'd say that he was sent by God the Holy Spirit. He preached every night 
three times on Sundays while members of his team fasted and prayed. In six months, Rochester was completely transformed as 100,000 people came to faith in Jesus Christ. Not 100, not 1,000, not 10,000, 100,000 people in a week's worth of meetings by the power of the Holy Spirit. A pastor in New York who was converted in the Rochester meetings gives the following account. He says, the whole community was stirred. Religion was the topic of conversation in the house, in the shop, in the office, on the street. The only theater in the city was converted to a livery stable. The only circus into a soap and candle factory. Grog shops were closed. Sanctuaries were thronged with happy worshipers. A new impulse was given to philanthropic enterprise. The fountains of benevolence were opened and men lived to do good. Now, the gospel doesn't stop you from being involved in the issues of the day. Together with several other leaders, Finney promoted social reforms, such as the abolition of slavery and the equal education for women and for African Americans. But if you want to affect real change, lasting change, genuine change, Work for the Lord by promoting the gospel. Discover your gifts. Attend every service you can. Invite others to church and to meetings. Ask for opportunities to share your faith. Do it all with the Lord's compassion. Show the humanness of our religion. Have the heart of a stranger towards everyone because until they know the Lord, uh, they're headed for a Christless eternity and that's unacceptable because the Lord is not willing that any should perish with it all come to repentance in Jesus Christ.